Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Joe Aletto, and I'm the production manager of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform encompassing finance, technology, and geopolitics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with the world's foremost investors, creators, and thinkers. And just as we do at our global SALT conferences, we aim to both empower big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the minds of subject matter experts. And today we are quite excited to welcome Lorenzo Tione to SALT Talks. Lorenzo is a serial entrepreneur with a passion for the intersection of technology, art, design, communication, and social value, a true Renaissance man. Lorenzo is the managing director of Gangels and a co-founding chairman of Start Out, two of the leading groups dedicated to supporting and elevating LGBTQ plus leaders in the venture startup ecosystem. As the managing producer at Sing Out Louise Productions, Lorenzo is also a Tony Award and Drama Desk winning Broadway producer, Hades Towns and The Inheritance, and the co-creator and lead producer of Allegiance, the Broadway musical starring George Takei and Leah Salonga, of which he also directed and produced the 2016 film. In developing Allegiance, he spearheaded social media viral strategies that led to astounding growth and unprecedented awareness and audience engagement for George Takei and to the founding of The Social Edge, for which he currently serves as Chief Executive Officer. He previously co-founded startups PowerSet and Artify.it. He is an investor, board member, and advisor for startups such as Figure Eight, Weights and Biases, CrowdMed, Gobble, Just, and Lucid, and many more. He is an outspoken LGBT advocate and was named one of the most influential LGBT people in tech in 2014 and 2018 by Business Insider. He was born and raised in Milan and completed studies at the University of Texas at Austin, from which he holds an MS in computer engineering. If you have any questions for Lorenzo during today's talk, please enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And now I'm thrilled to turn it over to Sarah Kunst, Managing Director of Clio Capital, to conduct today's interview. Hi, thank you. Thanks, Joe. And Lorenzo, we're so excited to have you here today. Um, so let's jump in. Uh, that was a, sure. you know, amazing kind of background that, that Joe gave, but I always love to hear it uh, from the horse's mouth, such as it were. So, so we'd love to, to just kind of have you tell us how we got here. Sure. Um, okay. It's, a, it's kind of a complicated story. Um, I, you know, moved from Italy to Texas. Um, to study engineering and then found myself uh, uh, sort of in the in the path of uh, startups. I ended up uh, starting my first company right in 2003, which was uh, um, an artificial intelligence search engine, semantic search engine. And uh, from there, um, you know, we exited the company in 2008. I ended up uh, really kind of focusing on a number of different things from venture investment to advocacy and ended up co-founding Startups, which was uh, the first entrepreneurial network dedicated to helping LGBTQ um, entrepreneurs. It's, uh, I, I, it's kind of like a crazy journey that, that took me from there to Broadway and then back into venture. So I'm happy to go into um, any part of it that is interesting or kind of yeah. talk about. So we're going to spend a lot of time on Broadway because I, despite being tone deaf and a massive musical theater geek, 
Um, some of you might have missed my uh, revival of Rent in my apartment the other night. Um, it was accompanied by tequila and it was fabulous. So uh, uh, it's in previews now. Um, so so tell us, yeah, let's just jump in there and then and then we'll work our way back. I have questions okay. about how you think about the, the, the tech exodus to Austin and what AI looked like in 2003. Mainly, I just want to talk about Broadway. So so how how did you get to be uh, in the immortal musical of Nathan Lane, a producer? <laughs> so it's really interesting. I think um, the last year has given me uh, a lot of opportunities to kind of like chart a path or, or, or sort of figure out what the thread was that led me to a lot of different decisions and a lot of different things that I've done. And, uh, you know, it, it really is interesting that I think I can actually go back to um, the fact that I arrived in Texas um, sort of uh, without knowing anybody and uh, kind of as a, a, you know, a little bit of an adventure, but I arrived just a handful of months before September 11 happened. And, um, you know, it's really interesting because even as uh, you know, a white dude from Europe with all that privilege, you kind of look at um, being an immigrant as being something that is uh, very much identity forming. And um, all of a sudden, the rhetoric and the way in which people talked about immigration and immigrants had shifted. And um, you know, there's so much precariousness in the life of anybody that kind of tries to establish a life and a job and a family and relationships in a different country when you don't know exactly what is going to happen and are you going to be able to say and it took a long time and the reason why i mentioned this because it really had two two major impact on things that that kind of had both personal and uh, professional um uh repercussions one is it, you know, in a way that might sound pretty trite and uh, sort of trope of a movie, it led me to come out. Um, and uh, it, it had a lot of, uh, of an impact, of course, in not just personally, but on things that I ended up feeling like I wanted to do just in light of that experience and of um, understanding my identity better, which, for, for example, was after the exit of my first company, deciding that one of the things that I really had enjoyed was the mentorship I had received from uh, people I had worked with and the advice and sort of had enjoyed that entrepreneurial journey so much and had been talking to friends who were starting companies and running companies and still were feeling like they had to be in the closet with their investors and their board members and their employees and really start out was born out of that feeling like you wanted to give someone a reason for being um, sort of proudly and, and loudly part of their own community while at the same time, you know, building whichever vision for uh, a better world, you know, all of these entrepreneurs were actually doing. It really is, it's really interesting because you realize how much of your mental energy is spent on, you know, this, uh, um, you know, set of problems and layers that you otherwise would be dedicating to being a better founder. And then the second thing that happened is um, completely unexpected and completely um, not um, not something that was ever part of a grand plan, so to speak. I, uh, I one evening I was in New York City in a theater and I just happened to uh, meet George Takei, whom um, I and a friend of mine 
recognized as being the actor who had played Sulu on the original Star Trek series. And, you know, a little starstruck or whatever, you know, we, we kind of struck up conversation. What I didn't expect is out of that conversation and out of the particular show we were seeing that evening came the recounting of his own personal experience and his own childhood um, when he and his family, along with 120,000 other Japanese Americans, many of which were citizens, American citizens, um, were imprisoned, uh, lost their jobs, their property, their freedom, and imprisoned in internment camps for no crime other than the fact that they looked like the people who had bombed Pearl Harbor. And um, there was, you know, this was 2008. There were definitely a lot of echoes that still were fresh from September 11 in terms of how Arab Americans had been treated and the Japanese American who had stood up kind of that at that time to um, denounce the risk of falling into the mistakes that the country had done, uh, had made already. But something really struck me, you know, my own experience and having felt like that sense of precariousness and really the kinship to the experience of people who had come here building a better life for themselves and their and their families and all of a sudden had lost everything. I just found, and my friend who happens to be a very talented composer found um, just this idea or this notion that this was a story that needed to be told, to be told. And, you know, as crazy as anyone who's ever, you know, founding a company or starting a new enterprise we never we had never worked in the theater before and we're like we're going to write a show and we're going to put you in it and we're going to take this to broadway and it absolutely sounds nuts but it took about seven and a half years uh and um you know on the path uh, added an incredible group of talented performers including tony award winner Lea Salonga. Uh, gave their Tony debut to a number of other incredible performers and creatives and took that idea, reading after reading, workshop after workshop to its opening in San Diego in 2012. And then from there to Broadway in 2015. And then again, um, in, onto sort of the, the screen uh, of movie theaters around the world. Um, and, and the show continues its life. And it's one of the things that I'm the most proud of. Um, a new production is going to actually be in Japan very soon in March, which I'm hoping the world will have resumed operations enough to allow me to actually be in person and see it in person as opposed to having to uh, see it through some kind of stream uh, component. But that kind of is the story of how I got really started and um, connected to the world of Broadway. Um, the the connections to my own interests and, and um, passions are, I think, uh, can be drawn back to the power of storytelling, which is really critical for anybody, be it an entrepreneur or a salesperson or someone who's raising money for a living or someone who's investing money. And of course, someone who is telling stories for the purpose of telling stories on a stage or on a screen. Um, it's that it really incredibly arcane and, um, you know, from time immemorial part of our own identity as human beings, as social beings that really um, uh, focuses in stories, the power to not just 
recount and pass information, but to allow others to inhabit empathetically the world of someone or somewhere that doesn't yet or doesn't exist and allows them to imagine what life would be um, in, the, in those circumstances. That's how hearts and minds are changed. And that's also how, how great movement forward is made into uh, humanity and society. That's because people have the vision of imagining the world that isn't yet and are able to tell the story of how much better the world would be if that came to pass. I love it. So um, that is incredible. I also love that you're just you're just so good at things. You, you move to America, start a company, sell it. You go to a play, see George Takei, and then seven years later, have a Tony. Like, you know, you, you plus, plus five to seven years equals success, it seems like. I don't know. You know, I actually have spent a lot of time in my life sort of thinking about what success is. Um, you know, there's, there's all sorts of ways in which I could look at the facets of things that I've done and say, I've been successful. And there are ways in which I can look at the things that I've done and say, I have not been successful. And it's really interesting because, um, look, you know, PowerSet was an amazing company um, that, uh, you know, we had built some really awesome technology. More than anything else, we had brought together an incredible group of people of which I'm really, really proud. And I continue to invest and follow in the companies that, that um, you know, our PowerSet family sort of went on and found. But in a lot of other ways, it, it was not the success we had hoped it to be or did not realize on its vision or its mission of competing sort of in the market with the big search engines. It became um, a fortunate exit um, with value for all involved, but it became also a, 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 a reflection of its circumstance, right? It was 2008. We had a really great partnership with Microsoft. Um, you know, the Microsoft acquisition of Yahoo initially did not go through. That meant pressure for the company to look at other ways in which it could compete in, in search. We also ended up closing our deal um, a couple of months, not even, before the 2008 market crash. So just a few things off on which I had necessarily no, not a lot of input and the story could have been very different. And Allegiance is the same thing too. Ultimately, it, it's a show that, you know, was seen by hundreds of thousands of people, changed tons of hearts and minds, and I'm so proud of it. But hey, we opened just a few weeks after Hamilton opened on Broadway. And it was a difficult season to, you know, compete in the market. Broadway is a, you know, it's a, it's a wonderful business, but it's also a ruthless one. And you have to sell 10,000 tickets every week. 10,000 people have to come to the theater every week to actually, you know, make it uh, financial, financially viable and, and, and success from that point of view. So, you know, we had to close after six months because the business wasn't there. But that doesn't mean that the, the accomplishment of having taken it there and having been able to create something that remains and has an impact for years forward in other forms, in other countries, isn't, isn't there to be, uh, to be appreciated either. So I don't know, I have, uh, I've spent a lot of time, especially in the aftermath of, of Allegiance, kind of thinking about what's success and what's not success. And closing the show was heartbreaking, but at the same time, it just allowed for a new perspective on who's, 
metrics uh, one should use to evaluate their own success. Yeah, no, that, that is very true. Every success uh, only, only kind of looks that way in retrospect when you squint. Um, so, you know, I would, I would love uh, to hear about kind of AI, right? 2003 is, is not necessarily a time I think of as being the heyday of, of artificial intelligence. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of how you got into that space so early and, and kind of your thoughts on, on how it's, it's evolved to the point where now it feels like you know, that it, 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 Elon Musk is spending lots of money to, to figure out whether or not we live in an AI simulation. For the record, I yeah, don't Yeah, I mean, <laughs> do you, for the record, do you think we do or we don't? Do, yeah. <laughs> we don't, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, especially because if we, if we lived in a simulation, 2020 would really have to have been someone spilling the coffee on their keyboard. But, uh, <laughs> So, um, yeah, I, there's, there's a lot of things that have happened in the last 20 years that have kind of create what we are seeing now um, as, you know, we can call it a golden age of, of AI, but really is just the beginning of an of a, uh, exponential acceleration. Um, and, you know, ultimately people have been talking about the singularity and what that means for a very long time. And it's just realizing some very sort of intrinsic uh, tendencies of like computational power growing, data growing exponentially or over exponentially. Um, and so all of those uh, things happening together at the same time lead us to where we are. I, you know, I also joke often that, um, you know, I've looked at the 2010, 2015 time as the time where I literally saw projects I worked on in school or in research. I was for a few years a researcher at Park, at Xerox Park. Um, uh, I saw those same things become reality in people's lives, right? Um, so Siri and, you know, everything that dialogue systems we are doing in 2000 and I don't know, what is it? It was 2010, maybe, something along, along those lines, where literally the um, sort of productization of things that we had been doing in the late 90s and early 2000s in schools and research laboratories. But you know, for what, what really drove me to the work I did was primarily kind of a combination of two passions, one um, in, in computer science, but the other one in linguistics. And actually the fact that having uh, grown up in the country, you know, with a different, um, with a different language and always having had a passion for learning languages and analyzing them led me to kind of stumble on computational linguistics and natural language understanding as the field I then later decided to take on initially for what I just felt like was a master's uh, degree and then became a research project. And then, you know, uh, it was just the right moment. And, you know, Xerox Park and, and Fuji Xerox at that time we are just centers of excellence for research that had been going on for decades and that felt along with computational power becoming uh, cheaper became the right thing to explore at the time. Funny anecdote, um, PowerSet was the absolute first pre-launch customer of Amazon EC2. So wow. it was like the, the perfect uh, use case up until that moment, every single startup, every single company that was trying to do something that was computationally intensive 
um, had to build their own data centers, right? They had to effectively buy their own metal and install it and manage it and all of that. And once you did, your computational power stayed inflexible until you decided to put more money into buying more machines and connecting them and, and all of that. And that was just a moment in, in which we kind of started hearing and having this conversation from this super secret project that was going on. Amazon was building this cloud computing thing and we were ultimately the very first um, uh, users of EC2 uh, uh, ever before they even launched the product. Wow, and, and so that's amazing. Um, I would love to kind of understand sort of the connection, you know, at what point sort of was start out any in angels like you know was that you were already angel investing you were already building these communities like how did you sort of decide and, and walk us through kind of what some of those organizations look like and how you work with them you know because you you do a ton to give back and that's how we first connected and and it's so inspiring so i just love to understand more about kind of how how you got involved and and uh, with these organizations and kind of what what you do with them yeah so you know, I, I think a lot of uh, um, it goes back to some of the things I mentioned before, which is a lot of the things that I've done ended up not being big plans or sort of uh, things that I had been thinking about for a long time, but rather the reaction to a circumstance and an opportunity and something that was just right there in front of me at that moment. Um, so, for example, um, after the acquisition and after the exit, um, I basically just met a few other people who had been talking about similar things in terms of, hey, there's no network or group or connection for LGBT entrepreneurs. And everybody was coming from a different angle. Um, you know, someone was coming from the angle, hey, this would have been a resource I would have liked to use. And some other, some other uh, were coming from, you know, I remember the, the, the point of view I, I really kind of resonated with or, or I came from which was, I mentioned earlier, I had a couple of friends who kept on, you know, we had these debates or these, these conversations around the fact that they were out with their boards and their, and their companies. And I was trying to understand why, like what was so scary or what was so, you know, in the way of that process. And, you know, obviously you just never know how people are going to react, but at the fundamental core of it, was a new balance between the perceived risks and the perceived opportunities. And so what I felt was like, okay, if we assume that there is a value in getting these great entrepreneurs focused on building their businesses instead of constantly worried about, you know, not disclosing that they're gay or that they have a partner or whatever it is, then, you know, how do we create that opportunity? How do we create that upside for people to kind of now rebalance that that idea of risk and benefit and you know it's not very different also to the fact of saying the moment you do not only you're doing a favor to them you're also creating an opportunity for so many others to see themselves reflected into roles that they had not seen or imagined possible before and you know i think you know, we started uh, start out in 2008, and it was a few years uh, from there to when, for example, Apple uh, Apple's CEO Tim Cook actually came out publicly. Um, it wasn't that people didn't necessarily already know privately, uh, but he had always held that 
there was no value. There was no bearing on his job as, as CEO, um, you know, from what his sexual orientation was. And that is true on one face of it. But what he came to the realization is the value of representation, is the power of giving people an idea of what's possible for them and seeing themselves reflected as a source of strength and diversity as opposed to just a, a reason to be called other. Um, and you know that, that realization was really core, both for start out and how I continued to see the impact I could have in ways that I was interested in, um, in, in my own community and in general in society, right? So one way is to really think about the venture capital ecosystem broad, in a more broader sense than just who the entrepreneurs are. Um, and that was actually from the, the uh, startup community that the two co-founders of Gangels um, I actually connected them. One of them was on the board of Start Out with me. Um, and they came to me with the realization that there was all this other impact that we could have if we didn't only focus on the entrepreneur, but also focused on who's making the decisions about investing, who's negotiating deals and terms, who is ultimately writing the checks that whose value multiply thousands of times in the venture world and up until that moment all of that wealth had only flown down to the same people in the same educational socioeconomic background and largely ethnic and racial backgrounds as well and so um it was you know gangels is one of many other groups of investors who focused on bringing more diversity um, at various strata at various layers in the venture capital ecosystem we are um, a large venture syndicate. Um, we are able to invest in LGBT founded companies, but also companies that promote and embrace and, and, and make visible their LGBT leadership. Um, mm -hmm. And all of that reflects also into who are the check writers, who are the people who are writing the investment. And I'll just add one thing, which is um, how that also reflects into the work I have been interested in doing in the theater world because almost everything that I've worked with or I worked on or that we worked on um, has always been about some form of increasing, increasing representation um, mm -hmm. and inclusion in different ways. Allegiance um, was the first show um, on Broadway that not only featured a largely Asian American cast in an Asian American story, but also had lots of Asian Americans uh, creatives, an Asian American director, an Asian American writer. So um, that was one. I'm working on a new show that is about um, a, the story of a young woman with autism, and mm -hmm. it really, we're so excited that we are we're ca we've cast an incredible actress who identifies on the spectrum for the role. And it's just um, it, it's just realizing how visibility and representation matters in so many. Uh, second, third, multiple order ways that you don't even imagine initially. Yeah, yeah. no, that that I couldn't agree more, um, and and love uh, love that you're doing that. Um, to to totally kind of switch topics, and and everyone feel free to drop questions into the chat. But um, to totally switch topics, um, uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on two very different tech ecosystems. Um, one, you went to school in Austin um, at UT. 
you know, and, and now it seems that half the tech world has, has decamped for Texas and their zero, uh, their, their zero state income tax life. Little do they know their sales tax is incredibly high, so you have to shop elsewhere. Um, but but would love to kind of understand, um, you know, what what your thoughts are on that tech ecosystem um, and what you saw there. And then on a totally different side, um, you know, what does the European tech ecosystem look like? Do you do you still spend a lot of time in Italy? Have you gotten involved in in tech there? Um, you know, I've I've spent a little bit of time in in Eastern Europe uh, in that tech, tech ecosystem. And it feels like there's so many brilliant people, but but we don't think of it as being as much of a place to go uh, to to look for investments or to start companies. So so you know everything outside of New York where you're based, uh, Austin to Italy. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I honestly, uh, having lived in Silicon Valley from you know 2002, 2000, yeah, 2002, all the way until. Um, 2010 with uh, starting kind of to uh, living a little bit of a, of a bicoastal life uh, uh, across the last few years of that. I remember, I really remember the difference in how it felt coming from Italy and sort of having been in the, um, you know, sort of, if not an entrepreneurial, still like the educational academic networks um, in the computer science engineering world in Italy to coming to Silicon Valley, and I remember this thing that people call the network effect, right? Um, of everybody being there. And everybody being there really meant so many things. It meant that um, you know you could interact with companies, you could interact with investors, you had these um, serendipitous moments of encounters where you would meet and people would come together across very different stages in their lives, in their careers and, and all of that. And all of that happened right there. And I believe really, I mean, it's really clear that that was a big reason of why. And, you know, if you, if you add to that, the fact that Stanford and Berkeley are also there, so they become this, this basins and these feeders of, um, of talent in there, it's really why it emerged the way it did. Um, New York certainly kind of uh, in the last 10 years really has come on strong as another center for uh, tech excellence and a lot of the same reasons kind of apply once enough people started believing that that was um, a possibility the physical presence of all of those different parties started to create these network effects so there was really you know, I don't think that the, the shift, the shift to Austin, we've seen it in some parts for a number of years. It really has accelerated shift to Austin and to shift to Florida, really accelerated this year. And it, it's, it would be silly to not point to the pandemic as, um, you know, a massive catalyst for, for the change and for the shift. And um, the biggest realization is that there is a lot of business that can be done without physically being present present in a certain given place, which removes some of the necessity for some of those network components to all be locally uh, there. And so what I, what I really do think it will do is it starts to level the playing field between um, places where people may move, as you mentioned, for state, uh, for tax reasons, but also for other regulatory reasons. You know, there's uh, there's all sorts of people why 
why would uh, you start a company in places other than California? There's all sorts of reasons for that that go beyond just taxes. Um, and one of the reasons why this has kept, for example, Europe behind um, has been, I remember how difficult um, friends that were trying to start companies in Italy, how just simply difficult it was to incorporate a business, which is literally something that you can do off of a website in the United States, right? And so you start to really kind of uh, chip away at all of those pieces and really allow people to cooperate effectively from a distance. And you start to see a leveling of the playing field. So the, to, the short answer is, I think Austin and Florida are going to be maybe um, a little bit ahead of the curve, but we're going to actually see acceleration um, in a lot of other places where talent is and where, um, you know, there might be the, the sort of regulatory and, and infrastructural um, conditions for innovation to happen. Um, I love the ecosystem in Berlin, in Germany. Uh, I, I think, you know, London and the UK has a, a, an advanced um, ecosystem as well. One of the things that Gangels does, and we actually had started doing before the pandemic um, uh, had hit, was to actually do twice a year um, ecosystem tours. We would take a group of investors um, to other cities and other countries um, and sort of interact with the local, both the local um, sort of uh, uh, regulatory infrastructure, um, but also with the local entrepreneurs, investors, LGBT ecosystem. Um, and we were planning several more for this year that we'll have to now, you know, shift off by at least a few months. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, that, that is awesome. From Austin to Italy and Miami and everything in between, I think we're definitely seeing a, a shift uh, that, that it's, it's possible to start a company anywhere. Um, and certainly lots of places uh, are, are slightly more tax friendly and, and uh, have nicer beaches than, um, than Silicon Valley. So um, I, uh, we have a great question from Peter and, and he was asking back back to my favorite topic, uh, theater. Um, you know, he said, with Allegiance, did you ever think about kind of the geopolitical significance or, or history lesson um, of the Japanese internments, particularly during the start of the Trump presidency? Yeah, so, you know, I mentioned how the, the, the work on Allegiance was not a work of like months or weeks. It was the work of years, right? And so we, we started the work on Allegiance and the inspiration for it came at a time when Trump just was not even, you know, something that people could have imagined. Um, what, felt, what felt relevant and what felt um, uh, emotionally important was the memory of September 11, which was only seven or eight years old. And the fact that, you know, the country had almost uh, gotten close to repeat the same type of mistakes in the name of fear and of fear of others um, that they that that we had done in um, in the 40s. And we never, ever would have imagined that fast forward to when we actually opening on Broadway, the world feels like this is exactly the reason why this needs to this story needs to be told. And I do think that, you know, I mentioned it before, it's sort of um, life is timing and you can't, you know, uh, you can't ever uh, get too upset about it. But like, you know, we opened at the same time as another important historic musical about the, um, you know, sort of relevance of, 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 of the time 
And, you know, with Hamilton being the success it was, I think the, the story and the, and the message got lost a little, mm -hmm. um, but it certainly resonated enough. You know, we had a um, funny thing that happened. Um, we were, I think we were in previews or we had already opened um, and the, um, a couple of like people in the Trump camp made some really remarkable um, uh, sort of remarkably bad statements. Um, mm -hmm. One was Trump himself who actually said at some point that he didn't know if the internment of Japanese Americans had after all been such a bad thing at the time uh, he would have needed to be there to know whether or not that was the right choice or the right thing to, to do, which is absolutely insane. Um, and we took it as an opportunity to basically say, well, you know, you don't actually have to have been there. You just have to learn about what happened. So why don't you come and see for yourself what it was like for real people, for families and what kind of impact it had on real lives. And, you know, we made it into um, a little bit of a marketing gimmick and, and actually kept a, 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 a seat in the orchestra open with his Trump name, with Trump sign reserved for Trump um, on it for a number of different performances. And people would take pictures and tweet the, um, the pictures to, with the Trump seat. But also the other thing that happened is the mayor of Roanoke, Virginia, um, I can't remember exactly what he said, but you know, to the, the same extent of sort of having said that it was justified at the time what had been done. And um, you know, a better, better story or a better resolution there, we facilitated a call between the mayor and George Kay. Um, and you know, I think that that at least led to um, an eye-opening conversation and uh, um, you know, a, a change of, at least a change of heart on the topic from, from him. Um, you know, we had just closed, we had already closed when the uh, child separation, child separation policy was, in, was put in place and literally had, you know, children in cages at the border. Um, we fortunately were able to continue to uh, tell the story through a movie. We shot um, a really wonderful life capture um, of uh, Allegiance and released it in, in, movie, in movie theaters all around the country and then around the world. And so that was at least able, um, another way for more people to actually get a chance to see it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, history uh, doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. And, and you're living through that in real time across kind of all, all, uh, all sectors of your professional life. Um, that's amazing. So, so uh, what's next? Twenty twenty has been a crazy year, and and you know what are you most excited about, particularly on the tech side? You know when it comes to investing, where what do you think twenty twenty one is is going to bring for startups? And maybe we'll we'll end with with your your tech predictions for the the year ahead. Um, I mean, I think that there's going to be um, some really massive innovation happening in. AI as it applies to more things that we have not really seen it applied to, just because data, the amount of uh, data that we are producing and that we're able to train new models on is just astounding. I think that the, um, the work that OpenAI has been doing and GPT-3 just kind of like gives us a little bit of a, um, of a glimpse on the kind of exponential change and really 
you know, revolution from the point of view of what's possible. We are going to see, you know, things, things that excite me are, you know, autonomous vehicle, um, autonomous flying. Um, uh, there's uh, lots of AI application to detection of um, disease. Uh, you know, we're now seeing uh, things that are, that can be applied to uh, anything from radiology to, to you know vision, uh, vision systems applied to medicine. I'm I'm personally a big fan of data science applied to health and wellness, and so lots and lots of health tech and wellness tech, um, more exciting uh, things to basically improve and prolong um, people's lives, which you know I think is a big scientific um, next milestones or next frontier. Um, and I also am excited about other things that are happening. I'm, I'm excited about changes in medicine that are, <laughs> changes in medicine that are, um, for example, looking at the science of psychedelic um, and uh, how those uh, can really have a change and an impact on people's lives. Um, we're seeing the impact of gene therapy and CRISPR as being like the very beginning of an absolute like revolution. Um, and uh, we actually, a lot of the investments we are, we've made and we're making reflect a lot of those trends. So I'm expecting to see more. Oh, and one, one other big trend is absolutely um, innovation, hardcore technical innovation to solve climate challenges. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we've been talking and there should, there absolutely should be regulatory um, impact and legislative impact to uh, how we deal with the, with the question of climate change. But I think that what we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is an onslaught of new technology that really changes the ball, the ball game when it comes to um, how we deal with climate change. Couldn't agree more. I love it. Um, Broadway, climate change, AI. Um, you truly are a renaissance man. And this has been so fun. Um, thank you so much for, for joining us. And, and Joe and the SALT team, thanks so much as always for, for having us. Absolutely. No, I just want to say from, from my and Lorenzo, it's, it's great that you're able to address this this issue of diversity in, you know, by being in the room and by also bringing the companies and having, you know, this this two-sided focus on it. When we had Steve Case at, at Salt and on Salt Talks, he was talking about, you know, rise of the rest and how in, uh, investment is now being distributed across the country. We had Alan Shaw, who is um, chairing diversity at Bank of America, and he said people are doing the uh, prioritizing these things because diversity is good for business at the Absolutely. end. Absolutely. So Absolutely. Um, just want to thank you for that. And I, you know, to sort of also like uh, make this go into a little bit of overtime, just for one, uh, you can give us a quick little thing if you want about how we evangelize those people who are already in those positions to, you know, at Andreessen Horowitz, at, you know, a, a Briar Capital, at these places that probably are, diver are uh, emphasizing diversity, but how we get those people to um, further emphasize what they what what we're looking to do here and that this is a fantastic question and it's one where i and my partners at angels really think about all the time the way that we um that we've found and that we found and really started to resonate is what you mentioned a moment ago is just by simply being in the room and being a partner to those organizations that may have not in the past moved as quickly and as swiftly, you start 
presenting yourself and everything you represent and carry with you as a valuable partner, as a valuable piece of the conversation. And just by little, little by little, there are changes that happen. For example, we ask um, all of the companies that we invest in to basically publicly state and sign um, a, a declaration of value effectively. It's a letter, it's on our website. And it basically talks about all the things that we care about and that we expect our company portfolio companies to care about too, from diversity in recruitment to diversity in board recruitment to um, being so good social citizens and looking at things like the one percent pledge of you know your profits and your equity to charitable causes that you and your and your stakeholders really care about, um, and one that is probably one of my favorite. It's um, it's an initiative that um, we didn't start and we were so happy to be able to join as amongst founding members and has so many of the VC organizations that uh, may in the past have not seen this as an issue or a problem also join as co-founding members and we hope more of them will come on board too. It's called the uh, diversity term sheet writer for diverse investors or diverse check writers um, and it's basically language that VCs and companies who are negotiating a term sheet can agree to include in their documents that basically commits them as investors, major investors and company to make room in all future rounds for at least some portion that they can decide an amount or an amount in percentage for diversity-based check writers and investors. And that means creating access for people who traditionally have been left out of what ultimately are the most valuable and the most value creating um, rounds, investment opportunities that exist. We used to say in the Valley and now hopefully it'll be everywhere. I love that, that's awesome. That's fabulous.